We are beginning a new series today in the book of Colossians, and the book of Colossians is a very interesting book. It's, it's not a terribly long book, but it's a book that's, that's segmented very similarly to how we saw the book of Ephesians segmented, and in many respects, that makes a lot of sense because the book of Colossians was written at roughly the same time that the book of Ephesians was written. And that's why I selected Colossians to be our continuation of our previous series. So we finished studying Ephesians together, and during that same imprisonment, and I'll talk about this a little bit more in just a moment, the Apostle Paul also wrote the book of Colossians. He also wrote the letter to Philemon. And so after we finish Colossians, we're actually going to look at Philemon briefly as well. It's one of the, Philemon is one of the shortest books of the Bible, but they were all written at roughly the same time. They were all written in the same context. Again, we'll address that in just a, a few moments. But um, today we're going to be looking at the first section in Colossians, and we're going to be talking about the fact that you don't need a title to be a minister. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that as we look at this in just a moment. So turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 8. Our primary emphasis today will be verse 3 through verse 8. But let me read for us Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 1. And this is how Paul's letter to the church at Colossae starts off. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our, fellow, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to look at your word together today. We're grateful, Lord, to have access to it. We're grateful to be able to see the things that you've communicated to us in it and to be refreshed by it. Lord, we know that there are all sorts of sources of information that come across our eyes and hit our ears over the course of any given day. And so, Lord, it's a real privilege to be able to carve out some time like this right now to be able to look at what your spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write down as he was seeking to, to help and to encourage the believers at Colossae. And so, Lord, we pray that we would take encouragement from this as well. We pray that we would understand the concepts that are brought up here in this passage and that this wouldn't be something that, that feels like it's merely an academic exercise to be able to look at these verses. We pray, Lord, that this would be a life-changing moment for us as we worship you and study your word together. So, Lord, we're thankful for this opportunity to look at these things. We pray that you'd speak to our hearts now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to give you a little bit of background as we start the, our study of the book of Colossians, just so you understand kind of where some of this information was coming from, the letter to the Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul 
somewhere around the year A.D. 60. So some people debate maybe it could have been written as early as 58. I've seen a lot of people say that maybe it was written uh, as late as 62. It's somewhere around that, that era, somewhere around the year 60. And he wrote it during his two-year house arrest in the city of Rome. He wrote it at the same time he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. He also wrote it at the same time he wrote, uh, like I said a moment ago, his letter to Philemon. Uh, the church at Colossae appears to have been planted by a man named Epaphras, and it was planted several years prior to all of this, when, uh, during the time when Paul was ministering for three years in the city of Ephesus. So Paul spent three years ministering in Ephesus, preaching the gospel, building the church, developing leaders, doing all of that there, and during that time, the church at Colossae was also started. And what happened was, uh, you, you have a man named Epaphras, and Epaphras heard the Apostle Paul preaching in Ephesus, and he responded to the gospel, and then decided, I need to take this message, I need to take the gospel back to the people of my home area. And so he went back to Colossae, and uh, at that time, a church was born. He went and he preached the gospel, a church was born, but in time, what started to happen was that church started to experience a lot of doctrinal issues and the lives of its members were being directly impacted by that reality. Now, I don't want us to take for granted the blessing that we have right now gathered together. You and I have the opportunity to study the completed Word of God, and we devote a lot of our worship service time to being able to do that. But could you imagine living as a believer during the first century? Don't you think it'd be a little bit challenging to fight off false doctrine before you had a completed copy of the Scriptures? That's a bit challenging. And so the believers at Colossae were actually struggling with this, and in some respects, it seems like a very logical struggle. Before you have the completed Word of God before you, that may be something that you wrestle with. Now, the Holy Spirit obviously was aiding the believers and helping them in that season while the Word of God was being completed, but at the same time, it was a bit of a struggle. And so that was a struggle that was taking place in the city of Colossae. And so you have that message, that information by Epaphras, it comes back to Paul through Epaphras. And Paul writes this letter to help these believers in Colossae. They're young believers, but, they're young believers, but he wants them to understand good doctrine. And when you look at some of the doctrinal truths that Paul is going to emphasize when we work our way through this book, you're going to see that he focuses on doctrinal truths about Jesus himself, who Jesus is, how Jesus is supreme, what Jesus has done, his nature, his character, his work. All of these things are things that the Apostle Paul addresses and wants the church at Colossae, to understand. And he also wants the church, as they re reflect on that truth, to develop a very healthy and mature faith. And I hope that that's our, you know, we're at the start of a new year. I hope that's your desire for yourself. Uh, it's certainly a desire that I have for myself, that I, my faith would continue to develop, that it would grow mature. And there's always room for us to grow, no matter how long you've been a believer, there's always room for us to grow. And so Paul wanted the church to develop a very healthy faith. He wanted them to develop a very mature faith. He wanted them to live out the truth of the gospel, not just know it in their heads, but to, to actually live it out. He wanted them to know the real Jesus deeply. And then through that relationship, apply the gospel to their lives in, in all areas. 
And he also wanted to help prevent this church, and this was part of his motivation in writing this letter, he wanted to help prevent this church from following false teachers who were teaching unbiblical and worldly things, and apparently that was an issue in Colossae. It seems that there may have been at least one or two people with very charismatic personalities that were, were going around teaching falsehood, and you have these young believers who are not quite deep in their understanding of certain things, possibly buying into some of that false teaching. Now, as we study this book together, there's a variety of things that I, I hope we'll get from it as we worship the Lord in the midst of our study, but I hope that we'll develop an appreciation for who Jesus is, especially as we look at some of the details that are specified here, and also how He's capable to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. Because if we're not convinced that Christ can satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts, our hearts will then go in a different direction and we will try to utilize something else to satisfy those deepest longings, and that will produce pain, and it will produce regret. But Christ can satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. He is Lord over all creation. These are things that Paul emphasizes in this letter. Christ gives us more than this world can supply. Christ invites us to trust Him completely so that we don't fall prey to the patterns and the philosophies of this fallen world. Now, Paul ministered to the people of Ephesus, right? And so, you, you know, think about, you know, Paul, three-year ministry in Ephesus. He's ministering to the people in Ephesus. Epaphras hears that message and then goes to Colossae, and then Epaphras ministers this truth in Colossae. So keep their examples in mind as we look at the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today. What would it look like for us to apply, or maybe I should say it this way, to follow their examples as we seek to minister to people in the context in which you and I happen to live. What kind of minister can you and I become through the power of Christ? And as I mentioned a few moments ago, you don't need a title to be a minister. And I think this passage does a great job of illustrating that. Look at some of the things here that it tells us that the Lord can make us capable to be. I think one of the things that it tells us that the, that the Lord can do for us is that He can make us ministers who are, are thankful for the faith and the love of the church. Think about how Paul phrases this here in verses 3 and 4. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So that's how he starts off this, after he gets past his greeting, this is how he starts off some of the meteor sections here of the book. Now, if you could relive any season of your life, so think, think back over the course of your life, if you could relive any season of your life, what season would you select? Do you have a season in mind that you think, you know, if I could relive, if I had to relive one season, if you were forced to, which season would you select? Would it be your high school years, or would those be years that you would choose to to forget and say, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't think I'm gonna, I don't think I want to relive those. Some of us probably be like, yeah, high school years, that'd be great. And others would be like, I don't even want to remember that those years happened, right? Now, when I was in high school, that was a season of time when I started to become very open about my faith in Jesus Christ. And I started taking the risk a little bit at a time. I was pretty nervous about doing it, but I, I started taking the risk to share people or share with people the message of the gospel. Some people I shared that with responded with polite interest, and others seemed to get, I don't know, a little bit hung up on some of the things that I was saying and maybe mock my young faith. And I, I still vividly remember when I caught a friend mocking my beliefs behind my back when he thought I wasn't looking, when he thought I wasn't paying attention. 
I actually happened to see it with my own eyes and hear it with my own ears, and I remember it was very hurtful. It was something that, that from time to time I think about, because that, that was when I understood, um, you know, a very early season of my life where I understood this is what it will feel like when someone that you're actually friends with mocks your faith in Christ. This wasn't like an acquaintance. This was actually a genuine friend. And I think just in life in general, it's easy to be critical. Um, I think in some respects it could be popular to, to mock the followers of Christ in all generations. I think I, I frequently hear people even just mock the church in general. Uh, times I even hear professing believers speak poorly of the church and maybe po- point out the church's flaws and, and do so in an unhelpful or an unredemptive manner. But when you look at how this portion of Scripture opens up and the Apostle Paul begins addressing things to the church at Colossae, how does he speak of Christ's bride, the church, in this passage? And how did those who told him about the church at Colossae, how did they speak? You know, how did Epaphras speak of the church? They spoke well of them. Even when they were speaking of them outside of their hearing, they spoke well of them. Paul here, was, he says he was told of the faith and love that were spirit-empowered characteristics of the church in Colossae. That's the message that has reached Paul's ears. Now, every era of history uh, has been filled with, and we'll, we'll focus our, our, our attention just on church history for a second. So we'll say every era of church history has been filled with challenges and struggles that the church has had to confront. Every single era has had those. Challenges, struggles, different things that need to be addressed. Some of those struggles are internal struggles, and some of those struggles are external struggles, and usually there's a little bit of each happening at the same time, and that's certainly the case for the era in which you and I live right now. Internal struggles and external struggles that the the church in general wrestles with, that the people of God wrestle with. But in the midst of the pagan culture of Rome during the day, the church at Colossae was demonstrating genuine growth in faith and love. These are some of the earliest things that Paul addresses here in this book. The fact that they were known for their faith, the fact that they were known for their love. And by the way, wouldn't it be nice if that could be said of every local church in every era of church history? That it was known for its faith and its love. It's known for its faith and its love friend of mine, I think I've shared this with you before, I remember when I was a teenager, and uh, I, I visited his church one Sunday, and he, he said, I said to him, what's your church like? And he said, it's a really Corinthian church. I said, a really Corinthian church. If you ever want to read something that's got kind of like a, a letter of discipline to the church, you know, read First and Second Corinthians. And I said, wait, are you saying your church has like a ton of problems that need to be addressed? He said, tons, tons. Looking forward to seeing you on Sunday. I was like, okay, slightly awkward. So if someone refers to their church as a real Corinthian church, think about what they might mean by that. Um, But here, this young church, the Church of Colossae, it had a genuine faith in Jesus. And the result of genuine faith, if you right now, if I right now have a genuine faith in Jesus, that's going to result in something. You know what that'll result in? It'll also result in genuine love for God's people. If you have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, you will develop a genuine love for God's people. So as we love God, we are inspired to love those who have been created in His image. And in fact, loving others as Christ has first loved us, when you look at the message of Scripture, it basically reveals to us that it's one of the most powerful ways that the Lord demonstrates His power to an unbelieving world through the love that He inspires among believers. 
And an unbelieving world comes to know the nature of Christ's love frequently through observing how believers interact with one another. I want to tell you something that I hope encourages you because it certainly encouraged me, and it was something that took place right here in this building. Several months ago, I invited a friend of mine to visit our church on a Sunday morning while he was in the area. And admittedly, this is his own admission, he said he wasn't really into things like church or God or, or things like that, but we, were, we are genuine friends. And uh, he was in the area, and I invited him to visit and worship with us that Sunday morning, or at least see what it was like. And so he actually took me up on that invitation. All right, so he gathered together with us, he and his family. They came and, and uh, worshiped with us one Sunday. And he recently told me, this is less than a month ago, he recently told me that that visit had a profound impact on him and his family. And he he basically said it destroyed his stereotypical impression of what he thought the church was like. He said it it destroyed that. I had this stereotype in my mind of what I thought the church was like. And and I said, well, tell me more. And he said, all right, let, let me tell you a little bit about it. He said, everybody I took the opportunity to introduce myself to was kind and gracious to me and actually took the time to actually engage me in conversation or be nice to my wife, be nice to my kids. He said, every single person I talked to was nice like that. I said, well, I'm glad, <laughs> you know, I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really happy. I'm, I wasn't surprised, but I think he didn't know what to expect, and so he was a little bit surprised. And then his children were immediately invited to participate in a youth event that was scheduled to take place that afternoon right after worship, and so his children immediately got included in what the children of our church, the youth of our church, happened to be doing, so that was nice. Well, there's been an additional development. He and his family just recently moved. And he said, you know what, I've decided that, that our, our family, we're going to attend, he said, I want to attend a church in our area that's like your church. And so they were looking for a Christ-centered Bible-teaching church in the area that they just moved to, and they found one. And he said, I don't want to just be an attender, I want to actually get plugged in. So they found one, and they started volunteering and have, have decided to get involved. And again, he reiterated for me, and so I feel the need to tell you this, because it just happened. He told me that his experience with our church family that Sunday directly contributed to his decision to do that during this next season of his life. That's a very positive thing. I was very encouraged to hear that, and I very much wanted and was eager to share that with you, because I want you to keep that in mind even when you think about what the Colossian church was like. I think that's exactly what you or I would have experienced if we visited Colossae during this era and decided to go and worship with that, those believers as they gathered together. I think the genuine faith of Jesus was being demonstrated through these people, and it was coming through as genuine love for others. And where did this get, this, get its start? Well, it got its start in their context with Epaphras, who loved them enough to tell them the truth. And it got, got its start in Epaphras' context when the Apostle Paul told him the truth. But what you see is that a minister... Someone, you know, that, that ultimately seeks to minister the gospel to other people. They are thankful for the faith and the love of the church, and what they end up doing is actively looking for ways to demonstrate that. And that was the reputation. That was the pattern that was being demonstrated in Colossae, but it was being demonstrated to them first by those who brought the gospel to them. So it's exciting to see how the, work, the Lord was working in individual lives and how that started impacting people collectively, and it became the culture of that local church. There's something else that this scripture points out that I want us to notice as well, and that's this. A minister 
is someone who is also thankful for the hope that we have in the true gospel. And if you look at verses 5 and 6, it says this, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, let me pause there for just a second and say this. It, might, it must have been quite an interesting time to live during the century immediately after the resurrection of Christ. That would have been a very interesting season of history to live in. During that century, you have brave men and women traveling all over the known world at that time, sharing the gospel with other people. And many of them knew that in doing so, they were likely risking their lives because some of the areas that they would go and they would share the gospel would take deep offense to the gospel being shared because when you were sharing the gospel, you were saying, all right, Jesus Christ is the one true God. But many of these areas had deities that they would consider a local or political deity. And so it was almost like a confrontation to their patriotism to confront the false gods that they happened to be worshiping. And people would take great offense from time to time at people sharing the gospel for that specific Reason. So you, many of these people genuinely risked their lives to share the message of the gospel. But at the same time, there was a lot of benefit that came from it because the Spirit of God was also preparing hearts and minds to receive the gospel as these messengers came and made the gospel known. And in these verses, Paul reminded the Colossians that the gospel that had reached them was now being proclaimed all throughout the world. And great spiritual fruit was being produced as more and more and more people came to faith in Christ. People throughout the world were learning what real hope truly is. The hope that Christ supplies, by the way, is not just a wish, it's not just a possibility, it's a guarantee. And the people in that generation were finally starting to understand it as that message was being preached all throughout the world. And through Christ, we know that we've been given the opportunity to live hopeful lives, and that hope is not extinguished by changing circumstances. And that's the message that the Lord wants us to hear. That's the message the Lord wants us to embrace. That's the, the message that the Lord wants us to share as He gives us the opportunity to do so. Now, I'm grateful for every opportunity the Lord gives us in our generation to do the very things that Paul tells us were taking place during the generation in which he wrote this letter. Again, think about this. He's saying the message of the gospel is being proclaimed all throughout the world. It's being carried all throughout the world. And they're just a couple short decades, maybe three short decades, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And they did not have the modern means that you and I have to convey a message so these people were doing this old school. They were going, you know, different places by foot. They were going and traveling and risking their lives and uprooting their family just to share a message. When you and I share a message, we don't have to uproot our family to go and share the message. But people at that time, they were uprooting their families and going and sharing a message and making the gospel known. I have to tell you, when I became a pastor a few decades ago, which is, by the way, every time I say that, it sounds weird, but it's been 25 years that I've been doing this now. 25 years. And so when I first became a pastor, there was actually something that bothered me that I didn't really know what to do about it. I would spend a considerable amount of time each week in sermon prep, which I think people would probably expect that their pastor would do. And then I would deliver those messages. And as I would deliver those messages, I, it, it would dawn on me. I thought, all right, I spent all, I spent all this time preparing something and then sharing this with our congregation. But if you're not there live in person to hear it, you'll never hear it. If you're not there in that moment, to hear it, you're never going to hear it. And now think about 
some of the developments that have happened in the past 25 years since I've been serving in pastoral ministry. Right now, as we're gathered here, live, in person, there's a camera over there, and there's a camera over there. You know, the northern part of our state today, they've canceled worship services because it's a sheet of ice. So just about every church I know in northeast Pennsylvania, where I grew up, it's, their worship services are canceled today because people are having a hard time going around. So you know who's probably joining us? By the way, if anyone's joining us from Northeast PA on the live stream today, good morning. Glad to have you with us. But how cool is that, that while we're preaching here, while the message is being preached here, it could be live streamed to another portion of the state, or we've also had people in other countries we, uh, uh, you know, tell us that they access this information. In fact, just the other day, I got a message from somebody in Singapore saying that he always listens to the messages that we share here. In Singapore. And I think to myself, all right, so it gets live streamed, but it doesn't just get live streamed. It also gets recorded and then shared via podcast. So there's podcast recordings all throughout the week. There's videos of it that then go up on YouTube. And then the, the notes, I always take my sermon notes and then I share them online as blog content, and then sometimes I use them in books. And I look at that, and do I have to uproot my family even once to do any of that? And yet the message of the gospel from this pulpit doesn't just reach Langhorn and doesn't just reach the people gathered together in this room. It literally is proclaimed all throughout the world from this one-square-foot plot of land. That's kind of amazing. And when you look at what was taking place during this era here, you still have the message of the gospel being proclaimed all throughout the world, even before any of that modern technology was available, things that have really only become actively used in the past few years of human history, things that were not used all that much 10 years ago. I don't know too many churches were live streaming a worship service 10 years ago, or even two years ago, right? Right? And so you look at this, and I look at this here, and, I, and you see the gospel advancing, and Paul acknowledging this, and I think, you know what? God is not limited by human technology. The power of the gospel, the message of the gospel, the power of the Spirit of God will work in every generation. He was working in this generation, he's working in our generation, and what a privilege it is to partner with him as he makes use of our willingness to actually proclaim and make the message of the gospel known. But in every generation since the gospel was first preached, we're given opportunities to be creative in how we make it known. And we're being given opportunities to make the message of the gospel known in ways that sometimes stretch us and sometimes uh, you know, cause us to look for an opportunity where someone might say there isn't much of an opportunity there. Many of you are probably familiar with Operation Christmas Child. Are you familiar with that? You know, Our church has participated in that plenty of times, and I know many of you probably participate in that. But Operation Christmas Child, they look for an opportunity to spread the gospel by basically asking people to collect a shoebox of gifts that gets shared throughout the world right, with, with children in impoverished countries. But as those gifts are then delivered, they also have somebody there who can preach the message of the gospel in the native language of the people that are receiving the gifts. So the gospel is preached, the gifts are shared, and people are blessed. I heard an interesting story this past week that just reminded me how, how the Lord will use all sorts of things to make sure that His gospel gets preached throughout this world. 
Years ago, this is probably about 15 years ago, I think the boy was about maybe 9 or 10 years old at this time, a young guy decided to participate in Operation Christmas Child, and he and his mother put together one of those gift boxes. They put his picture in there, and they sent it off, and he wanted his gift box to go to a, a, a young boy in an impoverished country that was his same age. But it turns out that his gift box was given to a young girl. And, uh, and you know, so he's like, all right, you know, a nine-year-old boy isn't always crazy about that, you know. It's like, I wanted it to go to a boy, but it went to, a, a nine, it went to another nine-year-old girl. Long time passes, long time passes. He gets a message on Facebook just a couple years ago from somebody that he doesn't recognize. This girl is messaging him, so he deletes, he deletes the message, he deletes the request. He's like, I don't know you. Delete, right? It seemed like spam. So that person then follows up a second time. And he's like, all right, you're being somewhat, all right, I'm curious now, you followed up a second time, is this not spam? And the person said, hey, I know you don't know me, but I just want to let you know I still have the gift that you gave me 15 years ago. I still have the picture that was with it. I just wanted to reach out to you and say thank you and, uh, and let you know that I held on to those things and they've, they've meant something to me all this time. And so he and this young lady started a correspondence and started talking. And then he actually got the idea. He's like, you know, she was in the Philippines. He decided, I think I'm actually just going to fly over there and meet. Well, I'll cut to the chase. They fell in love. They got married. They have a child now from the Operation Christmas Child thing. And so I look at that and I'm like, that really happened. I just read this story this past week that he, he like, they just, he couldn't, He's like, she's the apple of his eye. So I guess now he's glad that his gift went to this young girl in the, in the Philippines. He's not still lamenting what he was caring about when he was nine years old. But you look at that, and then you, the other thing I think about in this context here, the message of the gospel reached that home. And uh, now, you know, here you have them as, as brother, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, but now as a, a family, and they have a child now. They just had their first child. And so they're raising their child to know and love Jesus. And again, the gospel advances all throughout the world. The gospel advances all throughout the world. It's just so cool to see. It was happening during the time Paul was writing this. And I think that was on Paul's mind, because keep in mind, where is he writing this from? Prison. That would drive me absolutely nuts. If I, you know, I, I look at what Paul is, is going through here. He was the type of guy that was willing to just go to a city and preach the gospel until he got kicked out. And then he'd go to another city and preach the gospel until he got kicked out. And churches were getting planted all over the place, and now he's under house confinement in Rome. That's got to drive him nuts. So you, you better believe it encouraged his heart to think that it all didn't come down to him, that the gospel was still being preached all throughout the world, even while he's locked up in that building. That encouraged his heart. Doesn't that encourage your heart right here and now? You know, even as we hear a testimony from one of our missionaries that's helping to do Bible translation in different countries, the gospel's being preached throughout the world. And even as we think that you and I here living locally, maybe not even visiting any place internationally ever, and yet through the opportunities we have right now, even locally, we can preach the gospel throughout the world. I love that. You don't need, to be a, you don't need a title to be a minister. And here you see the early church saying, you know, we're just going to do this. Like, we're literally going to do this. And the message of the gospel was being proclaimed. Well, with that in mind, let me show you one more thing from this passage. And that's this. is from verses 7 and 8, where it shows us that a minister is willing to bring the good news. And it says in verses 7 and 8, it says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, 
He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, I want you to think back to when you first heard the gospel, all right? Think back to your childhood or whenever it was, or maybe it was sometime during your adult life. Did one person tell you the gospel, or did the Lord use many people to tell you before you finally responded to it? Think about that for just a second. I could point to quite a few people who played a part in me hearing the gospel. When I think back to, you know, the course of my childhood, there were family members that taught the gospel and modeled the gospel to me. There were church leaders that did the same. There were camp volunteers that did the same. There were some friends that I had in my life that also did that. More people than I probably could easily list or even realize planted seeds of the gospel in my life that eventually bore fruit wasn't just one person, it was multiple people. Well, the Colossians heard the gospel from Epaphras. And when, it, when his eyes were open to it, he couldn't wait to tell the people of his hometown. He wanted them to know. So he risked everything, and he risked experiencing their rejection, he, he risked experiencing their ridicule to bring them the hope that they obviously needed. And by the grace of God, people responded, and the church took root there, And without the aid of modern transportation, keep this in mind as well, Epaphras traveled about 100 miles from Ephesus to Colossae, most likely on foot. Most most of the time when you were traveling, even if you had an animal, you would usually just use the animal to carry your stuff. But most of your travel at that time was done by foot, unless you were going over water. But in this context here, most likely he traveled from Ephesus to Colossae, a distance of about 100 miles, by foot. And he did this because the joy of Christ had reached his heart, and he wanted to share that joy with his friends and family. He wanted them to possess it as well. Um, There's a a very well-loved verse in the book of Isaiah that speaks of the good news traveling by foot to reach a listening ear. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but Isaiah 52 verse 7 says this, "'How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news.'" who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You have Isaiah saying what? How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. When I look at Epaphras' story, I was talking about this with my family last night in our kitchen. They asked me what I was speaking on today. And so we were talking about it a little bit last night. I have to tell you, people like Epaphras, they motivate me and they inspire me. When I look at an example like this from Scripture, he was a man of action, not excuses, right? Most people that you'll meet in this world are people of excuses, not action. He was a man of action, not excuses. As far as we know, he did not possess any special titles. He did not possess any special credentials. I have no idea if he was well-educated or if that was not an opportunity that was ever made available to him. Um, All I know is that he knew a good thing when he saw it, right? And he wasn't waiting around for someone to give him permission to do what the Spirit of God was compelling his heart to act upon. When the Holy Spirit told Epaphras to tell his hometown about Jesus, he went and did it. Now, many people in our era, and maybe even many of us, spend a lot of time praying for others to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's extremely important that we do so, right? We want to be praying for others to come to faith in Christ. And I think a lot of us sometimes can spend a lot of time praying for that the Lord will will maybe send somebody into the lives of those that we care about who will then tell them about Jesus. But 
I think sometimes I, I well, more often than not, I, I meet people that doubt that they could be that messenger because they feel like they don't have some sort of special credential or some sort of title that allows them to do that sort of thing, or they don't feel like they have some superior education, and so they're afraid of what they might say, and maybe they'll get tripped up, or maybe they'll be asked a question that they just feel like they can't understand or, or come up with an answer to or, or something like that on the spot. But I would contend that there are some people in your life that will only listen to you, and the titles and the credentials and the education of somebody else might actually scare them away from listening to somebody else. It might actually be a hindrance to them being willing to listen to somebody else. There are people in your life who will probably only listen to you. And I imagine that there are people in Epaphras' life who would only listen to him. And so the Holy Spirit inspired Epaphras and said, listen, you got, you got the message, you understand it now. Go by foot to Colossae and make sure the people of your hometown happen to hear it. There are dozens of people who played a part in my reception of the gospel. And in, in your case, when you think about the people that the Lord's placed in your life, that you might have the opportunity to share the message of the gospel with as well and model it out in the day-to-day -day life that you live, you might be the first person who plants the seeds of that idea in somebody else's mind. Or you might be the person who shares a personal application of how the gospel changed your life, how the Spirit of God changed your life as you trusted in Jesus Christ. You might be the last link in the chain of leading someone to faith in Jesus, or you might be the first link in that chain of leading, to, leading someone to Christ. But you don't need a title to be a minister. I want us to remember the example that we're shown here of Epaphras. You don't have to have some sort of special credential to do this. Your credential is the Spirit of God who lives within you. He will empower you to do this. You just need faith in Jesus. You need love for His people. You need the hope of the gospel and a willingness to open your mouth wide enough to speak. Now let me share one last thing. I have often, for many years, wondered what it would look like to actually effectively share the gospel with other people. And I get the opportunity to preach, so that's something that I certainly enjoy doing. And so some people would be like, all right, well, you, you get that opportunity. Yes, I get that opportunity, so I'm going to take advantage of that. But what about on a day-to-day -day life, uh, day-to-day life relationships or things like that? Do you think I walk up to people that are in my day-to-day -day life and just start preaching at them? Do you think that would go well? Sometimes I want to but I don't, I don't tend to choose to do it that way. Last week I was in Pittsburgh, and uh, when I was uh, about to pull across the street in my car, there was a guy standing on a sidewalk with a megaphone, and that was his approach to preaching. And some of us might look at that and say, like, eh, I don't know if that would work super well. I like his approach to preaching better than doing nothing at all, to be honest with you. It's not the approach I tend to take, but I like his approach better than doing nothing. And, uh, but here, here's the thing, this is what I've noticed. I hope this helps somebody, especially if you've ever feared sharing the message of the gospel with other people. One of the most effective ways I have noticed to share the message of the gospel is to live your life openly in front of other people. Don't make a secret about what prov provides hope for you in the midst of things that challenge you. Don't be secretive about it. Uh, be willing to talk about your faith in Christ. I've, there are so many people that in the past few years I've had the opportunity to share the gospel with that I did not preach at and I did not preach to. I just lived my life in front of them. I showed them genuine love, even though they came from a different perspective from what I have. I engaged in conversation with them about things that interested them. 
And then when the conversation came around to what interested me or what I do, I didn't make any secret about it. I talked about it, but I spoke about it in a way that wasn't critical of them or anything like that. I just spoke about what's going on in my life and what I'm grateful for what the Lord's doing and what I have the opportunity to see where I was and where he brought me. And would you believe that once that became clear in my mind, I've had more and more opportunities to share the message of the gospel in the past few years just through natural, organic conversation than I remember having at any other season of my life. So it's kind of interesting. I'm noticing live your life openly in front of other people, have the integrity to actually live out your faith. That will matter, right? You know, if you claim to follow Christ and then every aspect of your life is just doing what the world does, that's probably going to wreck that, right? You know? But if you live your life openly in front of other people and, not ma- and you don't make a secret about the hope that you have, and then when the conversation naturally comes around to that sort of thing, which it will, and you take the opportunity that you're given, I think you will be surprised at the words that come out of your mouth and how the Lord uses it to bless the lives of the people that he put in your life. There's nobody in your life that's there by accident. The people you grew up with, the people that you work with, the people that are your neighbors, nobody's there by accident. They all very much on purpose know you and are connected with you right now in this point in time of history. And I don't think you need to stand somewhere with a megaphone to preach, but I do think we have to use words. And so getting to that spot where we get to use words, I think in many cases, is just about being conversational about what the Lord's doing in your life. It's very hard to argue with somebody saying, here's what the Lord's been doing in my life. That's not attacking anybody else. It's not even confrontational. You're just sharing a testimony of what the Lord's doing in your life and looking for opportunities to be intentional to do so. And I, that has become, I would say at this point now, has become one of my favorite forms of sharing the gospel, one of my favorite forms of evangelism. And I'd encourage you, if that's something that's been on your mind or on your heart, and you've been thinking, I don't know, is there like some big trick to this? Like, do you have to know some sort of method or some sort of system? Do I have to get some sort of special education or some sort of credential or some sort of title? No. Just love the people that you share the message of the gospel with, but actually use words when you share it. And don't, I, I, don't you, what do you think Epaphras' messages sounded like? These are people that he went back to that saw him grow up. And he probably told them, listen, guys, I was out in Ephesus. I heard this message preached. It's changed my life. I've come to realize Christ is my, is, is my Savior. I want to tell you everything I know about it. And if I have any questions, I'll follow up with Paul, and I'll find out if there's any other details I could pass along to you. That's how this whole letter to the Colossians came about. You have Epaphras going back to Paul, and he's like, could you fill me in? We've got some problems. I started a church, and now it's doing crazy stuff. And it's like, all right, relax. Let's work through this. But at the same time, what did he do? He's like, I'm just going to tell you what I know, and I'm going to let you see that Jesus has indeed changed my life. I think he probably did it in a very conversational way, but also a very intentional way. So it's a new year. It's an opportunity. There's going to be opportunities that come your way and my way during the course of this year. Never hesitate to give somebody else a glimpse of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ by just sharing what he's doing in your day-to-day life. I think the Lord will use that in a very redemptive way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of scripture like this and really just think about some of the things that you were doing in Epaphras' life and in Paul's life and in the church at Colossae. And Lord, obviously it was a young church in many respects, 
I'm sure there could be plenty of things that we'd look at and say, oh, it's probably kind of an immature church that really needed some additional depth in doctrine. And so, Lord, we, we pray that when we look at this example, when we take the time to study this portion of Scripture, we pray that we would understand what it looks like for us to really grow in our faith and then not shy away from, from sharing the hope that you've placed within us. Lord, we're just so grateful for the hope of the gospel. We're so grateful for the fact that through your Son, Jesus Christ, no earthly circumstance needs to be a, a permanent dilemma in our mind. These are momentary trials, momentary difficulties that we could see right past because we know and we believe that you have a glorious future in store for all who trust in you. So, Lord, we're just grateful for the fact that you give us encouragement like this when we look at your word. We're grateful for the fact that you're right here with us. We're grateful for the fact that you'll take people like us and that our credentialing will be your spirit living within us. And you will take any willing heart and any willing mouth and you will speak the hope of the gospel through that mouth and through that life. And so, Lord, we're grateful that we have the privilege to be part of your family and that we get to see what you're doing in our lives as that sort of thing takes place. We look forward to the opportunities that you'll give us to speak a message of hope as we testify to your power within us during the course of this coming year. Thank you for every person that you've placed in our life, the people with abundantly pleasant personalities, the, the people who try our patience, the people that maybe we even wish were not part of our day-to-day -day experience, Lord. We look at this and we realize the truth is every single person's there on purpose. And so we pray. We pray that you would just Use us as people who truly serve as your ambassadors to a lost world, and that we would reflect your heart, that we would be the fragrance of Christ in the midst of the context in which you've placed us. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the privilege to be able to look at your word together today, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.